Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mission and Meaning, a monthly podcast that connects you with the important mission-related learning and work happening around our Sacred Heart community. I'm your host, Ben Su, Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Access, and a member of the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy. At the moment, we're in a five-part series that explores the theme of restoration, how it's connected to each of our five Sacred Heart goals, and how restorative practices are already powerfully present in many of our school spaces. For this final episode of our first series on restorative practices and their connection to our Sacred Heart goals, I'll be sharing and reflecting on goal two, a deep respect for intellectual values. It goes without saying that a classroom in which students experience belonging and safety is essential to a student's intellectual growth. However, as Sally, Brisa, Lorne, and Matt have so powerfully shared, a thriving community is not only the beginning of, but also an essential outcome of a Sacred Heart education. In speaking about restorative practices in goal two, I'll be sharing two different examples from my experiences as a classroom educator. But I'd also like to begin by reviewing the fundamental beliefs of restorative practices, all of which are deeply aligned with our school's Catholic foundations and our Sacred Heart goals and criteria. First, restorative practices begin with the belief in the value of all people. Within a Catholic framework, we might call this belief a belief in human dignity, that all people possess inherent value that we must continually elevate and protect. Restorative practices also assert that people have a need to be in healthy relationships and that all people carry goodness and wisdom. So, if and whenever harm occurs between people, accountability means understanding the impacts of one's actions and participating in restoring community. Within a school context, restorative practices often occur with a tier framework. The first tier should be practiced widely and involves actively building community such as through participating in sharing circles or co-creating classroom norms and agreements. The second tier of practices are used to respond to incidents of harm, and they should occur far less frequently. Tier two practices are used to help members of a community to share experiences, understand impacts, and co-create agreements that help to rebuild trust and safety. The final third tier of restorative practices is used to respond to the deepest moments of harm that may necessitate an individual to leave the community in order to guarantee the safety of others. This final tier, sometimes referred to as re-entry, addresses how a school or a classroom might invite that individual back into the community in a way that's safe for other members and supports that individual in rebuilding connections. As a school, we're currently working to make tier one practices more widespread as we investigate how tier two and tier three practices best serve our community. Within this context, I'll share a couple examples of restorative practices from my experiences as a classroom teacher. The first example occurred when I'd been teaching an 11th grade American literature class within an all-boys independent school setting. During the spring semester, we'd been reading and discussing The Great Gatsby, and some of our important lenses were those of cultural capital, structures of power, and pressures towards cultural assimilation. In really wonderful ways, my students have been making connections between social theory, the novel, and their own lives. On one particular day, conversations became heightened as we discussed the topic of objectified cultural capital, that we often accumulate and display objects, such as clothing, cars, and homes, as signs of power, and that the possession of certain kinds of objects 
grants us not only recognition, but also access in different social contexts. Even our sense of self-worth can be tied to these pursuits. This lens helped us to consider Gatsby's conspicuous accumulation, his lavish parties, as well as his desire for Daisy Buchanan. As students continued to make connections with their own lives and to vulnerably share their personal beliefs and challenges, conversation began to center around two students in the class, a well-resourced white student and a student of color whose family received higher levels of financial aid. Reflecting on cultural capital and assimilation, the student of color shared that one way in which he'd been striving for acceptance was through fashion, specifically through wearing sneakers that he knew were challenging for his mother to afford. He shared about feeling trapped between wanting to fit in and wanting to honor his family's financial situation. In response, his classmate told him that he was foolish in wanting things his family couldn't afford and in placing so much of a sense of self-worth in objects. The first student responded with frustration, and as the second student kept pressing, the first student became angry. The conversation quickly escalated until the students verbally threatened one another. I intervened by sending both students to different administrators' offices, and I also paused the day's planned activities. The remaining students and I, within a sharing circle, took turns in naming our experiences and the immediate impacts that we were feeling. These practices are all essential elements of beginning a restorative process. For the two students who had left the class, I began working with our Dean of Students on a Tier 2 restorative conference. The first step involved pre-conferences with each student to give them the opportunity to describe their experiences of the event, how they've been reflecting since, and how they believed others had been affected. Within their pre-conferences, both students spoke openly on how they had contributed to harming not only the other student, but also the entire class. During these pre-conferences, the dean and I also described to each student the next important step, that both students, the dean and I, would come together for a formal restorative meeting. Both students agreed to move forward. During the restorative conference, each student listened to the other's experience and understanding of the harm they'd caused. They were also able to hear the ways in which I'd been affected, and something unexpected also emerged. It became clear that both of my students had been sharing a common challenge at school. They'd both been struggling with their sense of belonging. One student in terms of his ethnic identity and his being known as a scholarship kid, and the other in terms of being teased for a physical disability. Both students had felt othered and had deeply wanted to be accepted by their peers. With this shared realization, they also both recognized that their desire for acceptance had influenced not only their initial comments in our discussion, but also their escalating behavior. Both had felt the need to assert their authority. Although the visible aspects of their social identities were different, their experience of marginalization was shared. This realization was moving for the both of them, and as our conversation shifted toward thinking about accountability, it only seemed obvious to the both of them that they needed to apologize to one another. They also recognized that others in their class might no longer feel as comfortable in sharing openly or in learning with and from one another. They decided that they take accountability by preparing a joint apology and naming their commitments to one another and to their other classmates. During our next class, the two students re-entered the class community and shared their experiences, their understanding of how others had been affected, and their commitments toward one another. Within a sharing circle, every member of the class was given an opportunity to respond, and we all participated in writing agreements to help us move forward in restoring community and in making sure that this type of incident wouldn't occur again. This experience has been especially important for me because I'd felt such sadness and even guilt that such an incident had occurred in one of my classes. 
During the next year and a half of their high school experience, these two students actually became close friends. And one of my most cherished photos is with the two of them at their graduation. And during graduation, another student approached me and specifically named that day in 11th grade U.S. literature. At first, we chuckled about how challenging it had been, but the student then told me about how that experience had brought their entire graduating class together. He told me that the experience of honesty and vulnerability, of harm, and of care and commitment had defined them as a graduating class. My second example of the connections between restorative practices and Gold II differs from the first in a couple of important ways. First, it occurred here at Sacred Heart, and second, it speaks to how restorative practices can be intentionally integrated into learning and intellectual work, and not only in response to harm or solely through the perspective of community. During the 2020-2021 school year, I taught a year-long 12th grade seminar on hip-hop and social theory within the prep English department. The course involved appreciating hip-hop as poetic texts, of understanding the particular social context from which hip-hop emerged, of considering hip-hop as a form of social commentary on issues of gender, class, and racialized identities, and of using critical tools to consider how hip-hop has sometimes critiqued, but also sometimes perpetuated violence and injustice. Finally, the course culminated in students proposing, peer-reviewing, and creating original works of hip-hop. During the fall of 2020, our school was fully remote for the semester. I was intentional about building community to meet students' social needs and to also provide a supportive classroom space for us to engage our challenging curriculum. We spent the first three weeks of the year reflecting on the relationship between community, intellectual work, and transformational work. Thus, active community building was interwoven with the academic curriculum. One of our first readings came from Brazilian theorist and educator Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, in which Freire introduces the concept of problem-posing education, that all education should be directed toward and support learners in the transformation of their world. Within this framework, there shouldn't be a strict dichotomy between teachers and students. Rather, all members learn together through constant dialogue. Freire asserts that students must, quote, develop the critical consciousness that would result in their intervention in the world as transformers of that world and that an educator's efforts must coincide with those of the students to engage in critical thinking and the quest for mutual humanization. To achieve this, they must be partners of the students in their relationship with them. Thus, the teacher is no longer merely the one who teaches, but one who is themselves taught in dialogue with the students, who in turn, while being taught, also teach. These passages are incredibly resonant with our Sacred Heart goals and criteria that call us to relationships characterized by problem solving, inclusion and mutual respect, transformational leadership, serving the common good, building critical consciousness, and eradicating unjust social structures, practices, and systems. And all these values exist within and benefit from a restorative practices framework. One believes that each person already and always possesses knowledge to make meaningful contributions to the positive transformation of their communities. As we finished our initial reflection on Freire's framework, each of us began to name our values and needs in order to co-create agreements that would help us to learn together in honest and supportive ways during the rest of the year. Given the course's curriculum, a critical part of this exercise was for us to discuss how we, as a class, would approach the N-word, which has had a prominent presence within works of hip-hop 
and which has existed as an expression of hate and dehumanization, but which has also often been reappropriated by the hip-hop and Black communities as a term of affiliation, belonging, and even respect. How would the class deal with the term when citing direct quotes from works of hip-hop within their writing and during class discussions? So, we spent the next two weeks learning together. We began by taking inventory of the different approaches others had already taken. They included maintaining the full integrity of texts when citing them, replacing harmful terms with less harmful ones, and full censorship, such as inserting a silence in conversation or dashes in writing. Next, we approached linguistic theory to consider language's ability to carry meaning and to bring upon effects. We talked about how linguistic terms always emerge from specific historical contexts and how meanings and forms of words shift over time. We then considered specific racial and racializing terms from different moments in American history, and we examined often diverging perspectives on the use of the N-word from a range of black thinkers, popular media figures, social theorists, and hip-hop artists. We also paid special attention to the question of censorship, its intention to guarantee safety, but also its consequences in strengthening the power of a term that it aims to wipe away. At the end of this learning phase, students were posed with their first problem. To individually write a reflection supported by evidence from our readings and our discussions and how they believe the class should approach the term. This would prepare students for our next class period in which we'd create a class agreement. During the fall of 2022, all these discussions had been occurring through Zoom and as we as a nation, we're deeply contending with the impact of the spring and summer's prominent racial violence, the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery, as well as the violence faced by other individuals and racialized groups, and with the larger awareness of the systemic injustices connected to our nation's historical and ongoing racism. It's also important for me to name the demographics of the students in the hip-hop class. The majority of students were young white men, and there were only a few students of color with only one black student. Our next class period was structured according to fundamental restorative practices. We began with rounds of sharing circles in which each student was given the opportunity to share their initial thoughts. As one student spoke, all others listened with the intention to understand. A second round of circle sharing allowed students the opportunity to respond. These rounds of listening and responding occurred until every student felt as if they'd been able to fully share. I'd taken on the role of facilitator, and at the end of this process, I presented back to the students the different options that they'd named. The next round of sharing involved students proposing a process by which we'd decide on how we'd approach the N-word. Would voting require a mere majority? Would a decision need to be unanimous? Should every person's vote matter equally? Or did some votes matter more than others? And should a vote occur publicly or anonymously? During this part of the conversation, one of the students, a young white man, full of care and wisdom, proposed that if even one student in our class community, regardless of their forms of social identity, would ever feel uncomfortable or hurt by the class's approach to the N-word or by anything else that might occur during our year, then the class should prioritize guaranteeing that person's well-being. The entire class agreed. I believe that the student's contribution was important not only in our process to understand the problem of the N-word, but in our building a supportive learning environment. Unlike in the first example that I shared, this class never needed to participate in a tier two restorative process to repair an incident of harm, even as we went on to wrestle with some incredibly intellectually and personally challenging topics. Even as we eventually returned to in-person learning 
and even as we continue to engage during an especially fraught historical moment. This example is important to me because it shows the power of restorative practices as a proactive and not reactive approach to community. In addition, it speaks to restorative practices implications on goal two, a deep respect for intellectual values. Restorative practices build safe, respectful environments for learning in which every student has a voice and receives care from classmates and educators. And its principles and practices can be meaningfully connected to intellectual topics of power, of structures of oppression and agency, of solidarity, and of transformation. It allows for pedagogy, curriculum, and relationships to be integrated in truly impactful ways. In closing, not just this podcast episode, but also our first series on the connections between restorative practices and our Sacred Heart goals, I'd like to offer the voices of two of my students from that hip-hop class. These students possess care and wisdom and, quoting Freire, while being taught, also teach. The first voice comes from a student of color in the hip-hop class. Just recently, the student sent me an email, and reflecting on our time together, they wrote, We all have the opportunity to bond as a class unit. One of the most interesting things about the class was that it was one of the first that allowed me to bond with my peers and even to find common ground, something I never thought possible. And the second voice comes from another student in the form of a written reflection on the meaning of community as we are completing our year together. This student writes, a community supports one another and a community makes changes when someone isn't happy. We as a class made a rule that if just one person had an issue with something we were doing, we would change the entire structure of our class to make sure everybody is comfortable. This is community. This is what family and community mean to me. Everyone is valued. Everyone is loved. These words of a Sacred Heart student speaks to the foundation and the goal of a Sacred Heart education. Every person, whoever they might be and whatever they might ever do, is valued and is loved. And this is a love that's for each of us. And it's a love that calls upon all of us. And this wraps up the first half of our season on restorative practices connections to each of our Sacred Heart goals. For the remainder of the school year, we'll continue our conversation about restorative practices and we'll shift towards showcasing voices and stories from around our Sacred Heart community. If you have any questions or thoughts, please reach out directly to me, Ben Sue, at bsu at shschools.org, or contact the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy at omcs at shschools.org. <laughs>